I'm Nala Ayed, host of Ideas. In this age of clickbait and online shouting, Ideas is a meeting ground for people who want to deepen their understanding of the world. Join me as we crack open a concept to see how it plays out over place and time and how it matters today. From the rise of authoritarianism to the history of cult movies, no idea is off limits. Ideas is on the CBC Listen app or wherever you find your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. Where are you in that great divide among human beings? Is that proverbial glass half empty or is it half full? Fred Bryant is a social psychologist. He's known as the father of his field, which is how and why to savor the moment. Now, if you're more a glass half empty kind of person, Bryant has your back. Next time something good comes your way, you might talk to yourself for a second. Just say a few words, not just to notice that moment, but to make sure it's there for you when you might need it years later in all its beauty or encouragement or wonder. And uh, content warning here, there is some serious exuberance coming your way. You would first and foremost say how much you enjoy it. I love this. You say, I love this. This is beautiful. Oh, I can't believe this is happening. This is wondrous and wonderful. This is better than I could have imagined. I'm so lucky to have it. I'm so blessed to have it. You know, people might go their whole lives and not have this opportunity. And it might never come again. Now, some people would say, oh, that's a downer. But, but that's, that's the whole point. It doesn't. Nothing lasts forever. Fred Bryant's devotion to the art of savoring really served him well years ago when he reached the summit of Snowmass Peak in Colorado. He and his friends did a few very specific things up there to make sure that moment would live on in vivid detail. Bryant still has the small rock he took from the mountain as a kind of holy relic. It was about the size of a matchbook. A small piece of granite had been there for how many hundreds of millions of years and held on to it and wanted a piece of the moment to take back. And I remember getting this crazy idea to sniff the rock for some reason, to make it a, a, a multimodal sensory uh, experience. And there was this strange musky feeling. I could just feel being drawn into the, into the ancient moment. The Art of Savoring, coming right up. Later this hour, at first glance, it isn't really something you'd expect to find people studying in a lab, but it seems good things happen when you put compassion under the microscope. And time and time again, I would, I would ask them in my clinical care, well, what makes your doctor so amazing? And inevitably, again, it, it wasn't just that they were precise, they were able to diagnose, you know, in an effective and quick manner. Those things are important, to be clear. But they weren't sort of the glory stories, if you will. It was always when they, they greet me, I can feel the compassion when they're talking to me. I, I feel like I know who they are, and they know who I am. Shane Sinclair, founder of the Compassion Research Lab in Calgary. You'll meet him later this hour. Welcome to Tapestry. I'm Mary Hines. The idea of savoring a moment, how you do it, why you would do it, 
has preoccupied Fred Bryant for most of his working life. He's also devoted to it in his personal life. Bryant is a social psychologist at Loyola University in Chicago, and he's my guest. Hello to you. Hi, Mary. How are you today? I'm fine, thanks. How are you? I'm great. Thank you very much. You had a peak experience, no pun intended, uh, on Snowmass Mountain in Colorado. And that day, that magical day, would turn out to be absolutely pivotal to your life's work. Take me to Snowmass. What happened up there? Uh, it was uh, the summit of our dreams. There were two other, my favorite climbing partners joining me. And the three of us had tried twice before to climb this magical mountain. It is uh, spectacular, the highest peak in the Elk Range, not far from Aspen. We had everything uh, against us with the weather, the high snowpack, the, the rivers, uh, car broke down on the way in. We finally got to Timberline where the, the trees stopped growing about 3,000 feet short of the top. We studied the route. We were ready. And uh, over the course of the morning, we managed to thread our way through cliffs, broken rock, finally reached this magnificent point in the sky. And in that moment, we realized we'd reached the top, something we'd, we wanted so much. Now what? And the, uh, the agenda became enjoy this thing as much as is humanly possible. How can we hold on to this for as long as possible. So we began to uh, feverishly each work at that in our own way. And when I got back down later, I wrote down what we'd been doing, the thoughts we'd had. I mean, it was, uh, it was a laundry list of ways to go about holding on to the moment, maximizing, optimizing the joy in it, reminding us each other of, of all how much we'd wanted this, the times before we'd, we'd failed, uh, imagining a time in the future when we'd be unable physically to climb again. But we were here now. We, we hugged and we hooped and hollered and we, we told each other how much we loved one another and valued each other. We took in the view, memorized the feelings we were having, the view, closed our eyes and drank it in. I can remember standing on the absolute high point, closing eyes and feeling this powerful expanse, this vast openness around us. I can close my eyes and actually rekindle the awe, the, the wonder of that moment and get goosebumps. Do you still have the rock you picked up off that summit in order to have a tangible reminder of that moment? I do. It was about the size of a matchbook, a small piece of granite had been there for how many hundreds of millions of years and held onto it and wanted a piece of the moment to take back. And I remember getting this crazy idea to sniff the rock for some reason, to make it a, a, a multimodal sensory uh, experience. And there was this strange, musky feeling. And I could just feel being drawn into the, into the ancient moment that this thing had had, this, the stillness and the power of this place. I felt a bit sacrilegious to take it back, but mm. I thought I would cherish it. And I would pass it along as an heirloom. I still have it, and I still hold that rock periodically and uh, recapture the moment. How much of your, I mean, you, you used some very skillful means to savor that moment when you were at the top of, of Snowmass, when you, when you arrived. How much of that was spur of the moment and how much was 
planned and intentional and strategic. I know how to savor and by God, here's here's the my my checklist and I'm going to make sure I do every one of these things. It was quite a bit of both. In the moment initially, there was the the shock that we were there in this struggle. So I was overwhelmed with this involuntary rush of emotion. I just let myself go with that. Mm. Uh, and there were tears of joy. There was this uh, big grin on my face. It was a hugging. All of this was very spontaneous, the jumping up and down. And then there was a calming down. And as it began, that, that initial rush of joy began to fade. That's where the uh, practice, the skill of the happy mind kicked into action. And I knew what I would do. I would go and stand and look down to our tents that I could see we had tents set up and I had been looking up, imagining what it would be like to look down. And here I was remembering <laughs> having looked forward. And so I, that was a setup that I was able to see it. Then the taking of pictures, a 360-degree panorama. That was some a skill I do from every summit to capture the view and to capture the feelings in looking at that so that when I saw the photo again later, I'd rekindle the feelings. So I think it was a blend of both. Another thing that happened was there there was a, I don't know whether this was out loud or whether it was just silent in your heart, there was a little prayer at that moment. What 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 was that blessing about? That was about the blessing of of life and of being alive and of being aware that I was alive and in this special moment. The gift of being able to enjoy it, to be able to give thanks for it. And it's not just feeling thankful, but giving of the thanks. And it, it was a giving. What, what, what's the difference? What's the difference between being thankful and giving thanks? Well, to be thankful for something is, is you think it's great and you're, you're glad about it. But to be thankful to the gift giver the benefactor who freely, voluntarily gave it, that takes it to the next level. One has to know what they're thankful for Mm. in order to give thanks to. Mm. But it was being thankful for and then giving a prayer of thanks to the creator of existence. You've you've mentioned that it it was your mom who really taught you how to savor the world around you. What did you see her doing uh, that was so powerful to you when you were growing up? She would make me aware of the moment, first and foremost, how special it was. If it was a birthday, she'd say, this is, this is it. You'd look forward to this. Remember, we were talking about it. Mm. And uh, she would say, this, it's finally here. And you're with all of us together. And you realize how much we love you. This is very special. It only comes once. She'd remind me of the fleetingness of it as a young child. I used to be angry that all good things had to pass. And she said, but the fleetingness gives them this special uh, delight. This, this, uh, and the urgency to enjoy them is there because they will pass. So mm-hmm. she made me realize that the, it was a blessing. Mixed, of course, because all good things must come to an end. But the fact that, that they're there at all was for us to take advantage of. She showed me how to do that over and over in my life when I was very little in particular. And, and how did this become a professional pursuit for you in, in your field of psychology? Well, I, I began studying the dominant uh, uh, focus of, of research in psychology in the 1970s and uh, early 1980. That was depression. Mm. 
And the psychology had traditionally been dominated by dysphoria, depression, deficits, and dysfunction. All of this negativity. And when I went off to study the University of Michigan after getting a PhD in social psychology, I worked with a well-known psychologist, Joseph Vieroff. And Joe Vieroff had studied all his life well-being quality of life, how people make judgments about the quality of their own mental health. And Joe asked me a piercing question in one of our early meetings. I can still remember it. He asked me, uh, so you study depression, do you? And I said, yes. What is the absence of depression by you? And I said, well, it, it gets rid of the risk of a shorter life. It eliminates this uh, uh, this drain on your emotions and your uh, outlook on the world. And it lifts you up and you're going to be happy. And he said, you're telling me that just because you're not depressed, you're happy. I said, well, that's, that's the assumption. <laughs> and he said, well, it may be the assumption, but does that make sense to you? I said, what do you mean? He said, listen to me. He said, just because you're not down doesn't mean you're up. <laughs> I remember, I thought, this is profound. This is a Buddha moment where, this, where this, this beautiful mind is telling me this secret. And I realized I had been fooled into thinking that the absence of being down is being up. Just because they're opposites, no, they're not. He says, happiness is not the absence of depression. Certainly, depression t takes away the possibility of happiness, but just because depression's not there doesn't mean you absolutely can find joy and purpose, and you can find wonder, and you can find uh, gratitude, uh, pride in your work, for example. These things, he said, are something separate. So we, we launched a program of research that ultimately led us to realize that how people feel about bad things and whether they blame themselves for it or cope with it, that's great. That's about depression. But it doesn't have anything really to do with happiness. That happiness is not in the absence of bad things or the ability to cope with bad experience. It's entirely separate. So that led me uh, and Joe initially on a search for this missing link. What is the process through which people convert positive moments, happy moments, into joy? And what's the what's the secret sauce there? How do you do that? <laughs> well, we found there's a number of ways, and uh, some are almost mutually exclusive, uh, but they seem to be universal across culture and across age, walk of life. Um, probably the, the at the in, in the secret sauce formula in the recipe, one of the main leading ingredients there is sharing the experience with other people. In fact, that's the first thing people say they would do when something uh, good happens to them, when they encounter a positive experience. They seek out others to share it with. And it's, it's a relish, it's a spice in, in all positive uh, times to share them with one another. Joy is a social emotion meant to be shared. But then there are other things like memory building, Actively building a memory of a happy moment, it, it, it not only gives you something to recall, a memento, emotional ment memento, like, like the little rock from the summit of Snowmass Mountain, or an image in your mind, but it also actively focuses you on what it is in the moment 
that's worth remembering. Mm. And that inventorying of your environment pinpoints the things that are most precious and beautiful. My mom taught me how to do that, to look for what it is that we give thanks for or that we want to share or remember. Uh, there are other tricks, like uh, the trick of closing your eyes in a very special moment, uh, as on the summit of Snowmass Mountain. Referred to that as sensory perceptual sharpening. You can can really focus your attention more intensely on a specific stimulus by closing your eyes when you're hearing a beautiful song. You can pick out this, the individual strains of music or, or strands of, uh, of the instrumentation. Uh, and there are other things like behavioral expression. Physically expressing your emotions intensifies them. So, so by, by, by saying out loud, by God, this is sweet. Yeah, it doesn't get any better than this. Yes, exactly. To say that is to give yourself uh, the label. It's also to legitimize it and to pin, make it explicit. Not to say it is almost not to share it with yourself wow. as fully as you might. Wow. And uh, another of the secret, not so secret really, uh, ingredients that goes into savoring moment is losing yourself in it, becoming absorbed and engrossed in it to the point where you don't try to analyze it pick it apart or, or, or remember it, pinpoint the pieces of it. Instead, you just lose yourself in it. It's sometimes referred to as a flow experience. You're with Tapestry. Thanks for inviting us in, whether it's on podcast, on the CBC Listen app, on CBC Radio 1, or online at cbc.ca slash tapestry. Hello to you. I'm Mary Hines. My guest is Fred Bryant, a social psychologist at Loyola University in Chicago. Bryant is considered the father of savoring research. He's the co-author with the late Joseph Baroff of the book Savoring, a new model of positive experience. You know, for someone who is on board with this, but maybe feeling a little bit self-conscious about it, what's some of the language that you might use to mark that moment to yourself? If you're, if you're wanting to acknowledge the moment out loud, are there phrases you might turn to? Is there language that is really helpful on that front for somebody who might be tripping over, you know, what do I, what do I say in an overwhelming <laughs> moment like this? I'm speechless. Or what do you think? I mean, you can have your own self-conversation. That's a, granted, it's a monologue, but you would first and foremost say how much you enjoy. I love this. You can say, "I love this. This is beautiful. Oh, I can't believe this is happening. This is wondrous and wonderful. <laughs> this is better than I could have imagined. I'm so lucky to have it. I'm so blessed to have it." You know, people might go their whole lives and not have this opportunity, and it might never come again. Now, some people would say, oh, that's a downer, but, but that's, that's the whole point. It doesn't. Nothing lasts forever. So when it's there, why not wring from it the joy it has to offer and spend time with it? The key, then, is to be in the moment, and you can only do that if you slow down. You know, if you want to smell the roses, you can't roll the windows of your car down and keep on moving. <laughs> you got to stop, get out, go over, and physically spend time there and not let your mind be elsewhere. 
You know, here, here's what I'm grappling with, and it's entirely possible that you're a more jolly soul than I am, but here's my, here's my dilemma. It's easy to be bowled over when you've just climbed Snowmass Mountain and you're standing at the peak. How do I savor a moment if, if I'm looking out the kitchen window? Wow, that's a good challenge. I do that. I look out the kitchen window. And I, and I think the bleakness right now, <laughs> the bleakness. And there used to be green leaves there, so stark. Right, and said, right. And yet there's life. There are buds there that will come back. And, and people are still hustling and bustling down the street. So I, I still would be able to look for things that I find amazing. Like, what is glass? What, what would I see if there were just a wall there? Why is there glass? Who came up with that? And, and that we can see through it that protects us from the wind and the elements, that I can stand here in, in uh, a relative warmth and look out at the frozen tundra and, and, and uh, appreciate it. And I think how ingenious hum- humans are, how fortunate I am to be alive when I'm not looking out the, the mouth of a cave and I'm having to go out there and hunt for a woolly mammoth or something to to hunt for, I can just use my computer or my phone to dial up a a delivery and a meal. And there are people who would do anything in the world to have the freedom to do that. How blessed I am. How could I take that for granted? And I say, I have taken it for granted. I need to I need to savor the freedom that I have that anyone who didn't have it would give almost anything to have. So there's an art that comes from it, and to be fully in the moment as opposed to somewhere else is is not to miss that opportunity. Okay, so if people are literally crying right now in the control room. I, I feel like I need to tell you that was such a beautiful thing to hear. Are, are, does any of this not come naturally to you? Are you just such a born optimist that you can you can look out a window into a bleak Chicago morning or a bleak Toronto morning and say, glass is a miracle. Is any of it <laughs> hard work to you? Because when I look out the window, it's, oh my God, hello darkness, my old friend. You know, I guess I'm just going to be sad until May. Are, are you just naturally buoyant? Or, or has, have you developed some of this as a, in a conscious skill-building way? I think it's developed, although my mother had it and she showed me how to do it. I had a mm. wonderful role model. Mm. The challenge is when things are hard. And it's, that's, where I, that's where I have to draw on skills. I, I have to make a choice. I think we can all do that. We can all train ourselves to become more sensitive to the positive things in our environment. Our natural operating system, our modus operandi, is really to look for the bad things, to be hypersensitive to the hassles, the things that are wrong and shouldn't be like that. And they make us angry. They make us upset. And we tend to spend more time complaining than actually uh, relishing or savoring. And so that's a conscious choice easy to fall back into, and it makes sense. If we didn't have the ability to find the things that were wrong, we couldn't improve the world, and we couldn't survive. We survive by avoiding the bad things that might get us otherwise. Uh, But once those things are taken care of, then what? I think that's where we get locked into this this survivalist way of of, uh, perceiving the world. So it is a choice, but I am inclined naturally by disposition and by early childhood experience to look for the positive. Uh, although I remember the deep truth 
that my, uh, my, my younger daughter, Erica, told me when she was uh, three years old. I pour, poured her a glass of, of orange juice, and I realized, hey, this is a great opportunity. I'm going to pour her half a glass, and I'm going to find out if she's an optimist or pessimist. <laughs> so I poured this half glass of, of orange juice, and I said, Erica, is it half full or half empty? And I couldn't wait, being a psychologist. Yeah. And, and, and she said, she looked at it, and she said, that's easy, Daddy. It's both. What a sage. What a sage. A three-year-old sage. I said, I'm not worthy. I'm not worthy. Yes, exactly. And every moment has that opportunity. You can look at it either way. And it has the potential for both. She taught me to be open-minded and not to, to, uh, I had assumed she'd be one or the other. But she fooled me. She's been fooling me ever since. You mentioned early childhood a minute ago, and I, I always find this so interesting. Some people go through life not as open to experience, maybe for good reason. You know, I'm thinking where early childhood attachment is lacking. You might go through life in kind of a defensive posture. You're vigilant. You're bracing for the worst. And that doesn't really lend itself to savoring any moment, right? You might feel savoring is kind of dangerous because it means letting your guard down. What does that person do to open that door? They might try to find moments in their lives where they did open the door or where someone opened the door for them. Someone came alongside them and expressed through empathy concern and compassion for them. And they felt a warmth of connection. They felt that they were someone, that they they were understood, that they were valued. And in that moment of connection, that is an image of what can be. And there are other opportunities for that. But you're right, someone who's had a a rough upbringing where that's not been offered has uh, some obstacles and barriers to overcome. That's very difficult. So I think it it does involve being able to think of individual instances where it's happened, where you've threaded the needle almost and made it happen. What did that feel like? And what was it like to take a risk or to try to share something and have it work? doesn't mean it always will, but it means that it could. So in a clinical setting, could a psychologist offer savoring mechanisms in the same way they might suggest coping mechanisms? What would, what would that look like? They can. Uh, they asked someone, what were they thinking when they were going through the positive thing, a positive thing that the person says they didn't really enjoy? And maybe the person said, well, I was reminding myself this is going to be over pretty soon, Mm -hmm. and it could have been better, and it could have happened sooner, and it's not as good as I'd imagined. And then the therapist could say, yeah, but what was it that you did like about it? Well, I liked the very beginning, before it started to get bad. So, well, what was it about the very beginning that was that felt felt good? Oh, what did it feel like? Describe your feelings, mm. and so that has become a focal point in much uh, of the application of of modern age positive psychology in the clinical um, forum. So, I've seen more and more on that now. There are interventions developed by psychotherapists purely to help people enjoy happy moments more more fully. And they're recognizing that happiness is not in things. It's in our relish of things and what we make of things. Just as 
is pain and, and, and depression is not in bad things. It's in our judgments of the bad things. It's not just the elimination of negativity. It's also the cultivation of a positive view of the world. Is that particularly hard at the moment? A positive view of the world seems pretty elusive to a lot of people at the moment. Yes. And that's, that cannot be denied. The horrors of the world cannot be denied. And they cry out for a solution and resolution. Uh, so, and that's much to be said for tackling that. Uh, but to be able to also not lose sight of the positive things we do have. Uh, that's to be to too much abstract selectively and to say all we have are these terrible, terrible uh, nightmares, these terrible tragedies. They will always be with us, and they are terrible, and they are horrible. But at the same time, coexistent with them are delights, uh, spending time with uh, people we love, the, the moment of peace and solitude, if we can find it. Um, the opportunity to give a gift to someone who wasn't expecting it or a compliment. Little things. Uh, telling someone, calling them up. Someone you haven't spoken with in a long time. An old friend. Tracking them down and saying, I just want, to, I want you to know I treasure you. That you are treasured and appreciated. Mm -hmm. I should have told you that. I never did. And you know, you might like to hear that yourself and be angry <laughs> that it's not reciprocated, but it's, <laughs> it is in the giving that the joy is intensified. Mm. So, and, and if we wait for the absence of the nightmares and the horrors, the tragedies, we're going to wait forever. You can't wait till they're done with and resolved to then start finding the joy the joy will be there always, and it should not exclude the positive. Those things are there and to be dealt with, too. In your book about savoring, this landmark book, Savoring a New Model of Positive Experience, you say there's a question that can gnaw away at people when they think about life, and that question is, what is it all about? What is it for? Have you come to some kind of answer for yourself? I think there's more than one answer. It's not for mm. for uh, one simple thing. It, it's for an infinite number of things. It's for finding the truth. It's for improving the quality of the world. It's for loving. It's for finding where life came from. It's for exploring and creativity. It's for union with other people. It's for discovery. It's for peace and coexistence. No one thing, but everyone must find it. Everyone's searching for it as if it were a formula. And if we get the right formula, then we're, you know, we'll find this meaning. And the meaning may change. When I was a little kid, I thought the meaning of life was uh, uh, Saturday morning. <laughs> it was so much fun playing with my friends and, and watching cartoons and the sense of, of uh, safety and, and peace and freedom. I recapture that in a lot of ways now, but I think there's more to it than that. I think it's also uh, a life's work of devoting yourself to something that's worthwhile, uh, something where you feel whole and uh, where you can give back to the world more than was there before you came. 
You know, just as we wrap up here, uh, the website Rate My Prof is not known for its sunny outlook on <laughs> the university life. It is. It tends to be so full of rants and complaints. And the first entry I saw under the name Fred Bryant was, he's the G-O-A-T. This is the greatest of all time, and God bless him. You must love teaching if this is the vibe your students are getting in the classroom. I do. Uh, it was only through great teachers that I, I found my life's calling in my work. And uh, the chance to give that back, the wonder of the classroom and the magic of the classroom. There wasn't a class session that I, I taught that I did not savor, that I did not lose myself in the magic of it. If I had to do it, I'd do it forever. It's just something about it captures everything that I, I would want to, uh, to do in my life. The creativity, uh, the just plain fun of it, and the opportunity to see other people come alive and achieve their full potential. I used to uh, teach statistics, for example. It was my favorite thing because people had such low expectations. The students <laughs> expected it to be such a, a drudgery. But I told them, you're going to find magic here. You're going to learn stuff that would change the way you see the world. And I told them that were three letters, three English letters that I lived for in the statistics classroom. And they would perk up, what are they? And I would write them on the board. The letter O, capital O, capital I, capital C. And they would, I just let them think. They were trying to figure out, what's that stand for? I said, what it stands for. Eventually, I would tell them, is, oh, I see. <laughs> and when they'd see it, they'd get goosebumps. Oh, you're right. I see it now. I don't have to be afraid of this. I live for OIC, I told them. <laughs> yeah. And so I, I would, I just said, if I'm having fun in there, they're going to have fun. So I, I would tell them, you better bring an extra pair of socks with you to class every class session because I'm going to knock your socks off. <laughs> they loved it. Because, I, I mean, we had fun in there. Because if you can't have fun when you're learning, you better get out of the classroom. <laughs> I have never thought of a statistics class in quite this way. It's, <laughs> it's really good to talk to you. Fred Bryant, thanks so much. Thank you, Mary. Fred Bryant is a social psychologist at Loyola University. He spoke to you from Chicago. This is Tapestry, keeping you company and helping you make sense of the world. Online at cbc.ca. You can also find us on the CBC Listen app, on Spotify, on Sirius XM Satellite Radio, and on CBC Radio 1. I'm Mary Hines. Imagine the scale of this challenge. You are trying to measure a human quality clinically, empirically, without losing the magic in it. Shane Sinclair is the founder and director of the Compassion Research Lab at the University of Calgary. He's also a professor in the Faculty of Nursing and an adjunct professor in the Cummings School of Medicine. Shane Sinclair is my guest here in the Toronto studio. Hello to you. Hi, thanks for having me. Thanks for being here. Um, there's something really interesting about this work having a lab devoted to it, because I think it's on the face of it, compassion would seem to be kind of 
maybe a nebulous thing, hard to pin down, hard to measure. Um, walk me through what you do at the Compassion Lab. Yeah, so at the Compassion Research Lab, we like to say that we're advancing the art and science of compassion. And the reason for using those two descriptors, art and science, is because to your point, I think it is very much something that we feel is intuitive. It's something that we just bring. It's something that's just natural. But at the same time, and looking in the world that we live in, in certain sectors of healthcare, it's maybe not as natural or as apparent sometimes as we'd like to think. And we now know that there's actually a scientific sort of base to compassion research. We're discovering some things in terms of the science and the evidence behind it. And so we're trying to merge both of those things and to honor the art of it, that it is something that is a human element, at the same time not taking away the magic, you know, by mm-hmm. making it overly sort of scientific or sort of ticky-boxy, if you will, right, right, right. Um, and, and actually merging those two things together and saying, how do we, how do, we do that uh, integrally in a way that honors, honors the topic and honors the people that are involved in that compassionate relationship? How do you measure it? I'm, I'm going to circle back to your lovely phrase, the ticky-boxy yeah. aspect of this. Yeah. How do you measure whether compassionate care is being offered, is being delivered in the healthcare setting? I think we first need to start by making sure we're asking the right people about their experiences. And what we know from most compassion measures is that the existing compassion measures is that they were primarily from the perspective of the giver, of the healthcare provider. So it was about me coming in as a nurse or as a physician. I visited, let's say you, I walked out and said, you know, how, you know, how compassionate was I? How able was I to understand your particular needs? Which might be helpful, but I think it's a okay, far cry. I can cry. spot the glaring hole here, yeah. and I'm not a professional. And I think the thing, the comparator that I often like to give is it's sort of like going to a restaurant and you're going to do a Google review, but the waiter takes it away from you and says, now, now, that's not your job to be doing that as the customer. It's, it's my job. I'm going to tell you how <laughs> professional and how helpful I was. And so you have to make sure that you're actually asking the right person. And so the measure that we developed, it, it is a patient-reported measure. So I would say, much like we say about pain sometimes, that mm. pain is what the patient or the person tells us it is. I would say the same about compassion. It, it, it is what that person tells us. is com- If they're experiencing compassionate, compassion, I should say, because sometimes even my best intentions <laughs> or what I consider to be compassion <laughs> – might not mesh with what you actually need and what you consider to be important and how you experience compassion. So we, so what we, might go into that measurement? I, pain is an interesting analogy because I've seen the little charts at one end, you know, a, a, a fairly ha- like a literal happy face. And at the other end, a, a, a face that's, you know, clearly in some agony. What are some of the things you're able to measure when it comes to a patient-driven gauge of how compassionate, how much compassion did I feel? Yeah. The research that we did was qualitative. So um, as other people have said, qualitative research is um, sort of data with skin on. Um, And so they would say things to us like, "I, I can inherently know or feel, intuitively feel, 
when a nurse comes into the room and they are compassionate towards me. It's, it's something I can sense. It's something I can also observe in the way that they look at me, the way that they interact with me, the things that they do for me. And so um, we have a large sort of qualitative foundation that then went into sort of developing that measure. It's a, a Likert scale, so sort of a scale between agree to disagree with a number of points in between it, and a, a patient or a family member is able to sort of say, did my healthcare provider treat me as a person and not just as a patient? They're able to respond to that, which taps back into that thing of seeking to understand. Did the person understand things from my perspective? Did they provide care in a gentle manner? So it kind of taps into all of those different aspects of it's not just the warm and fuzzies, the intuitive feelings of a person coming to the room. It's not just a whole bunch of hugs and, you know, that sort of thing. It's not just simply action and doing things. It, it involves what I would call maybe a, a concert of things that need to kind of be working in tandem in some ways. You know, this gets very real and very personal, I think, for a lot of people. I love getting a hug from mm -hmm. a doctor. Mm -hmm. My sister would run out of the room yeah. screaming. I, I so, would run with her. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, potentially, yeah. So can it be a fine line? Can someone, yeah. you know, there, there must be so many ways this can go wrong. Yeah, I think sometimes, and I would say research is, you know, is as guilty of this as, as anything, is we do dumb down, I would argue, compassion to sort of this touchy-feely thing when it involves according to the recipients, but also to the responders, the healthcare providers that we've talked to over the year. It involves understanding. It involves understanding who you are and what you need and how you experience compassion. And it also involves wisdom in terms of okay, how can I best meet those needs? Am I the person that can best do that? Or do I need to kind of consult or hand off to somebody else, for example, within the healthcare team? So it, it, the understanding component, I think, sometimes gets lost in sort of the, what I would describe as just this bolus dose of kind of like untargeted kindness that just is sort of a, a shotgun approach. But I think And that's not effective. That's, that's not, not effective. Good. And I think I think it's not effective to the person receiving it. But I think on the other end it also can cause burnout um, among the responders, among healthcare providers of sort of like needing to be everything and, you know, everyone. Um, are, there, are there stories that stay with you as a result of all your work in this from people you've encountered, patients, nurses, doctors? Yeah, I mean, so many of the qualitative interviews, like th that's the stuff that I've really liked of sitting down and talking to patients and Let's sort of saying... Let's get into some of that. I remember a person saying to us, um, yeah, you could blindfold me, they said, and, and bring in five healthcare providers. And I believe I could intuitively feel which one of those would be compassionate. Um, what's going on there? What yeah, is, what's at work I mean, in that phenomenon? You talk about the art of compassion and the science. This is where I sort of like, oh my gosh, my empirical kind of you know colleagues are like, ooh, that sounds a little bit you know willy-nilly. But there's a capacity within us as human beings to sense danger, to sense mm. compassion, to sense kindness, to sense psychological safety. We 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 know these things, and there's probably sign sort of scientific 
uh, indicators that we could pick up on when that happens, but there's still a, a sensory kind of aspect to that that's that's going on. Something real is yeah, at the heart yeah, of this. Something something real, and and sometimes the most real things are are the things we can't see, the things we can't measure. We love that saying on this show. I steal it from the Polar Express, but but anyways, um, but <laughs> we take we can call life it wisdom own. wherever yeah. we get yeah. it. And so I love it. And from so the Polar Express. you know, how do they sense that? And probably the most sort of um, spine tingling story that I I remember when I was providing uh, psychosocial spiritual support to a, a, a cancer patient who was dying. I was there one afternoon and in walked a nurse as I was visiting with this person. And, and the nurse walked in and looked at the patient, looked her in the eye and smiled from the sort of the foot of the bed and then walked around the bed and went to the IV pole that was, you know, beeping and put a new IV bag there, punched a bunch of buttons and reset the pole, was there for probably 30 seconds to a minute. And then as she was leaving, she again sort of turned around at the the foot of the bed and just smiled and nodded and left the room. And when the nurse left the room, the patient said to me in a whisper, she said, I love that nurse. And I was a bit perplexed and, and probably like a little bit jealous. There was no sort of love for, you know, I was there for 30 minutes. That person <laughs> was there for 30 seconds. And so I asked her, I said, like, can you tell me, like, what makes you f- say that you love that nurse? I mean, she was there for 30 seconds. She seemed to be doing a fairly routine kind of monotonous aspect of care. Can you tell me to answer your question, like, what's going on there? What, what happened? And I'll always remember the response that she said to me. She said, I can tell by the way that she looks at me that she genuinely cares for me. And so again, you know, to be fair, there's probably some previous interactions where that nurse talked to the person and maybe got to know them. Um, so it wasn't just maybe the first time that person had come in, but there was still something that was conveyed that that person could intuitively feel. And I think the research that I've done, we've done in the Compassion Research Lab, I, I like to say is informed by <laughs> patients and is intended for patients. You know, it's intended to sort of circle back to them. And the reason I say that is because whether it was that person or whether it was a chemotherapy patient telling me about, like, I've got the most amazing doctor. And time and time again, I would I would ask them in my clinical care, well, what makes your doctor so amazing? And inevitably, again, it it wasn't just that they were precise, they were able to diagnose, you know, in an effective and quick manner. Those things are important, to be clear. But they weren't sort of the glory stories, if you will, <laughs> that made, you know, a, a good physician kind of move into the category of like an excellent physician. It was always when they, they greet me, I can feel the compassion when they're talking to me. I, I feel like I know who they are. And they know who I am as a person and not simply as a healthcare provider or as a patient. And so those stories, I think, very much inform the work that we've been doing. And I, I always say, like, I don't think there's anything particularly novel to the research that we're doing in the Compassion Research Lab. Like, there are novel aspects of developing a, a valid and reliable measure. But wisdom traditions have told us for eons that compassion seems to be absolutely essential to human flourishing. 
In fact, if you look at any of the wisdom traditions, Christianity, Islam, Buddhism, across the gamut, if you even look at um, you know, people like Charles Darwin and Einstein, they all sort of said that compassion is sort of the ultimate outcome of not only what it means to be a true Buddhist, a true Christian, a true Muslim, but a true human being. And so, you know, we take that, that wisdom, and we want to extend that into the realm of, of science and say, okay, how do we honor that so we don't take away the magic of that sensory aspect of what compassion is? It has to come from, from who you are as a person, and it has to resonate with me as the, the person that receives it. This is Tapestry, your guide to the messy business of being human. I'm Mary Hines. My guest is Shane Sinclair, the founder and director of the Compassion Research Lab at the University of Calgary. The term compassion fatigue is sometimes tossed around. I'm sure you've heard this a lot. Mm -hmm. The idea that people can only handle um, a limited circle of people and issues to care about and anything beyond that is just asking too much. Where are you on this idea of compassion fatigue? So I would say burnout and the, the phenomena of, of being taxed and not being able to provide care just due to sheer numbers and patient volumes is an absolute reality. When it comes to compassion fatigue, um, we actually did a pretty large scientific review a few years ago, just sort of looking into this concept. And I think one of the issues around compassion fatigue that we discovered is that it often implicates compassion as being inherently tiring. And as I mentioned, I think the things that are tiring to healthcare providers are things like moral distress, this idea of wanting to do what's right, wanting to provide compassion, but being unable to do so. And I think the challenge with, with compassion fatigue is it somehow insinuates that by being compassionate, I am somehow burning my sort of compassionate gas tank. But the evidence as it relates to compassion specifically uh, is actually suggesting the inverse, <laughs> that it's actually um, compassion seems to have a sustaining effect on healthcare providers when they're able, and that's the important caveat, when they're able and they're supported in providing the compassion that they want to provide. And there's evidence from even within COVID times, a, a recent study that, you know, it actually is far more detrimental for us to avoid suffering and to avoid providing compassion to others in the context of the pandemic than it is to be able to sort of uh, be able to express it. So, so maybe that phrase needs to be retired. Maybe the phrase compassion fatigue is the problem. I think we need to put it to bed. What, what would you say you've learned about compassion that could go beyond the realm of healthcare? Just something for a random human being out yeah. there listening. I think often when we think of, of compassion, whether we're working in a boardroom or we're working at the bedside, sometimes we feel that it's sort of like this additional thing that we have to do. And as soon as we, we feel that, I think we feel tax and burden and we're like, oh my gosh, like this, this is something else. But I think what we've learned from talking to um, many individuals in healthcare, but also outside of healthcare, is that it often involves infusing those small things into routine, 
sort of work that we do um, that actually make the biggest difference. And so, yes, it does involve sort of going above and beyond the call of duty. But as was the case in that story that I told you of the nurse who, who looked, it didn't cost, you know, any more time. It was mixed in sort of the everyday routine. Infused. Infused. Yeah. And I think infusing or stacking compassion into what we already do, I think it just becomes a lot more um, accessible to us in terms of our ability to actually think, okay, what would that look like if I look at my day from, you know, my waking hours to my resting my head on my Like, what are the interactions and how can I infuse just a little compassion to that barista that I, you know, talk to every day? How can I do that to, to somebody that I, I see on the streets? How can I do that to um, my colleague? And particularly, I think this is where sort of we move from sort of the, the basic compassion to the master's level, if you will. It's like, <laughs> it's really easy to do those things when it's like a barista who's giving me a coffee and, and somebody that I like at work, a colleague. But then how can I flex my compassion muscles, if you will, to those people that I find particularly challenging? And so I think starting with infusing and stacking it into routine care with people that we interact with on a regular basis, and then from that, sort of how can I extend that outward to, to individuals that um, I might find it particularly challenging to provide compassion to? Has this work changed you? Yeah, it has. I think all work changes us. One of the things that I think I half-heartedly hoped for in doing this research, and I think this is true of any researcher, is like I want to sort of pin compassion down and, you know, figure out what it is and kind of have some expertise on that. And I think it's like anything. The more that you look into it, you do learn a lot. But you also realize, like, there are some mysterious elements here that maybe you will understand a little bit more someday. But I think, like any mystery, there are some things that remain (laughs) unsolved. And I think that is, if you're a person that really needs to know and needs to sort of decode compassion, you might be challenged in that area. But if you can honor those things, I think it actually becomes really, really fun. I think it also keeps you honest, it keeps you relevant to recognize that, yes, there are many, many things and much, many advancements that we've made in our lab to understand what it is, but to not be so egotistical, to think mm. we can, we've cracked, we've it. cracked this, this compassion code, so to speak. <laughs> Shane Sinclair, it's really good to talk to you. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Shane Sinclair is the founder and director of the Compassion Research Lab at the University of Calgary. He's also a professor in the Faculty of Nursing and an adjunct professor in the Cumming School of Medicine. That's it for us this week. This episode was produced by Armand Egbali and McKenna Hadley-Burke. Technical production by Danielle Duval and Nuruddin Korane. The senior producer is Rosie Fernandez. I'm Mary Hines. Thank you for listening.
For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.